It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, July 15th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. You heard the man. Fair, fresh, fun. Extra fresh today, I would say. I don't know why. Just uh, feeling a fresh vibe here on the program. Glad to have you along. I'm Guy Benson in New York City. All the way through Monday's show, which is exciting. The reason that I'm up here is I'm filling in for Kennedy on her estimable program. Fox Business Network tonight and Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I hope you will tune in or perhaps set your DVR for that. Here on the radio, here's the lineup today. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, is going to be here. We had the governor on earlier in the week, now one of their two U.S. senators. We've got a lot to talk about with him, including the latest proposal from Democrats in Congress on spending that you have to hear to believe. I'm going to open my monologue with this in just a moment. It is breathtaking. It is breathtaking. We'll have Carl Rove here in the next hour. Looking forward to chatting with Carl and picking his brain as always. And then cannot wait to finally, after so many months, face-to-face sit down with Janice Dean, our friend. We'll talk about life. We might talk about the weather. That's sort of her deal. Andrew Cuomo might come up, Janice Dean, in our happy hour at the end of the show, the 5 p.m. hour. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday here on the show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. So if you heard me say, oh, it's going to be Janice Dean in the happy hour, but I can't listen at 5 o'clock Eastern, then just get the podcast. You can go to GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get a free podcast. We are almost certainly there. You can download individual episodes. You can subscribe for every episode, seven days a week, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. It is no charge to you every day, free on demand. Fox News alert as we get going here. Let's bring you stats as we always do. Coronavirus cases, and I'll have more to say about coronavirus and Dr. Fauci actually later in the show. Just as a heads up, a little little preview there, something that I want to sound off about. But the combined case count in the United States officially for COVID, 33.9 million and counting, the real number really exponentially higher than that. Multiple orders of magnitude higher, let's put it that way. The death toll now in the United States from this awful virus, 607,000. 365. The Dow is up slightly at this hour. We'll keep track of that as the program unfolds. Closing bell coming up in about 51 minutes or so. Okay, so as promised, I want to tell you about this new proposal from Democrats. Let me just take a step back and remind you a little bit of the lay of the land here. The Democrats passed $1.9 trillion, so almost $2 trillion, totally partisan, completely along partisan lines, party lines, 
at the beginning of the Biden administration, their so-called COVID relief package, much of which was extremely wasteful or unrelated. But they called it COVID relief. They said that it polled well. They passed it, $2 trillion. Not a single Republican vote because of some of the harmful provisions in it, including provisions that are preventing people from going back to work and hurting and holding back our ability to rebound economically. So that is one piece of this. The next piece is infrastructure, right? We've heard a lot about infrastructure and there's a bipartisan negotiation and they struck a deal and we've talked about it here. And I've been relatively positive, right? Positively disposed toward that agreement. Not because I love it, not because it's how I would draw it up, but because I recognize Democrats control all of Washington You got to take what you can get and do the best that you possibly can. And what the Republicans and Democrats have negotiated, at least in the Senate, on hard, real infrastructure, as traditionally defined, I think is pretty relatively reasonable and sensible. So that's what $600 billion or so of new spending. Paid for it, they say. Then you've got the federal spending that happens every year, which is now and has been now for a number of years, north of $4 trillion, right? That just happens every single year. That's Medicare and Social Security and defense and discretionary spending, all of it. What the Democrats have now proposed, and they don't have details for us yet, including the pay-for details yet, But what Chuck Schumer and the Democrats say that they have agreed upon internally is a reconciliation package. And again, I'm I'm really trying to make sure that I'm not going to lose you with all of these complicated silos of Washington, D.C. spending and in the weeds terms like reconciliation. I think this is a very sophisticated audience. You guys get it. But it's it's a lot to digest. Reconciliation is this tool that Democrats used to force through Obamacare, even though they didn't have 60 votes, that Republicans used to pass the tax reform in 2017, even though they didn't have 60 votes, you can, a few times a year, basically, if you're in the majority, do a 50-plus-1 civil majority legislation passage procedure if it is related directly to the budget. And if you start getting other things involved, like minimum wage or other details, It gets ruled out of order. You can't pass those things through reconciliation. But budget stuff, you can. So the Democrats are teeing up, even during the conversations about infrastructure, which could be bipartisan, they also have a separate bill of what they want to do just on their own, just themselves. And we were sort of wondering, what's that going to look like? Joe Manchin, who's a key to all of this, because without his vote, they can't do it, right? It's 50-50. They nominally have a majority because the vice president can break the tie, but it's a 50-50 Senate. So they lose one person and the chance for passage reconciliation just goes away. Joe Manchin is on the record saying his number in his mind of a reconciliation, Democrats-only package for this other Biden stuff, his other priorities, human infrastructure, whatever ridiculous thing they're calling it, is one, 1.52 trillion, somewhere in there. And he said, and it all has to be paid for explicitly. That's what he said. What have the Democrats unveiled? They said that we've reached an agreement. 
their reconciliation package that they say they've agreed on is $3.5 trillion in new spending. $3.5 trillion. And I know that we live in an age where we've had this crisis and the emergency and the pandemic and all these deficits and bad spending and national debt rising under both parties. Sometimes these numbers seem to just lose all meaning. Now, oh, billions and trillions and whatever. What they are proposing here to pass in a 50-50 Senate and almost a 50-50 House on party lines exclusively, $3.5 trillion in new spending on new things is almost precisely the amount of money that the federal government spent total in 2010 when Barack Obama was president. Think back to where you were in 2010. It wasn't that long ago. The federal government spent roughly $3.5 trillion on everything, every dollar that went out the door from Uncle Sam to the Pentagon, to the troops, to Social Security beneficiaries, to Medicare, to welfare, all of it totaled $3.5 trillion. The Democrats this week have proposed $3.5 trillion new dollars in spending. That is on top of everything else. That's on top of their so-called COVID relief. That's on top of all the emergency spending last year. That's on top of the $4 trillion plus dollars that they're going to spend as a matter of course in the federal budget this year. It's on top of the infrastructure money that they're talking about. It's in addition to all of that, $3.5 trillion. I can't really emphasize how insane that is. Now, what would that entail? Let me just read to you from the New York Times. The details include, quote, universal pre-K for all three to four-year-olds, two years of free community college, clean energy requirements for utilities, parentheses for me, Green New Deal, lower prescription drug prices, Medicare would be expanded. Let me pause there for a moment. Medicare one of the biggest programs that we spend the most money on, that we're all required to feed into every paycheck, it is going bankrupt. It is going insolvent. The people who run Medicare, the bookkeepers, the math people, have been warning now for years, we are getting closer and closer to insolvency. This is why some conservatives have talked seriously about reforming Medicare. It's a mathematical necessity. Medicare will, Medicare as we know it, anything resembling Medicare will disappear if we don't reform it. But what Democrats are going to do, they say, in this party line vote is expand it. It's insane. Oh, and last but not least, quote, green cards will be extended to some undocumented immigrants. They're going to do immigration in this. Now, that might get thrown out. By the parliamentarian, because you're not allowed to do policy changes not related to the budget through reconciliation. So they might just be throwing that in there to appease their base, knowing that it's going to get struck down. But they're trying to do it. So expanding Medicare, spending all of this money, doing immigration reform, $3.5 trillion. They say it's paid for, quote unquote. They don't have details. Now, I've read experts who are saying you can't raise $3.5 trillion in easy 
efficiencies or, you know, finding some savings here. They're certainly not going to cut spending elsewhere, maybe for the military. That's one of the only types of spending they ever want to cut for the military and for the police and for border control. Everything else, it's always up, 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 up. You're going to need huge tax increases for this if it's actually paid for. But my guess is it'll be partially paid for a lot of talking points, a lot of smoke and mirrors and gimmicks. They're saying it's paid for. They're not saying how yet. Now, the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, nonpartisan, they're going to have to score this. Joe Manchin is saying, I'm a little nervous about the price tag. It all has to be truly seriously paid for. I don't think they're going to be able to get close to that. But what the Democrats have indicated now, at least they're saying that they have an agreement to spend $3.5 trillion that we don't have. I just want to point that out. I know it's a small detail. We're, what, $28 trillion in debt as a nation. This is something I talked about when Trump was president, when Obama was president, when Bush was president. It's just gotten worse and worse. The last year, you can say it's a crisis, an emergency. So, of course, it shot up. We were not in a good place before the explosion of spending. But they're taking the heightened levels of emergency spending, and they are now trying to explode it by trillions. And this is before they get to, like, single-payer health care and that sort of thing. I saw, I think it was the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House saying, we like this as a down payment on our investments. $3.5 trillion down payment. These people are out of their minds. Now, there are some moderate Democrats who have heartburn. One gave a quote to a reporter, Jake Sherman, didn't ask to be identified by name, but here's a moderate House Democrat, quote, given red hot inflationary pressures. Oh, yeah, I didn't even mention that. Inflation, highest rate since 2008. A bunch of CEOs, there's a piece today in Axios, sounding the alarm on inflation. It might be here for longer than people are saying. They are fearing that it could be more significant and more long-lasting, this inflation, which really hurts people. We're experiencing inflation. The Democrats are like, hey, let's print three and a half trillion more dollars. So this Democrat tells Jake Sherman, quote, given red hot inflationary pressures and our strong desire to keep the House, a gargantuan $3.5 trillion package with massive new taxes is a non-starter for many of us. And I predict it would go down in a blaze of glory. That's some Democrat out there giving that quote. And from their lips to God's ears, but I put nothing past Nancy Pelosi when it comes to whipping votes. She might have almost no margin for error, but typically when the Democrats really want something, they get it done. And the progressives say it's not enough. And the moderates say it's too much. And then Pelosi says, you're all going to walk this plank and we're going to effing do it. And they all say, okay, and then they do it. So until this thing is dead, it is a live threat, and it could pass. When you add up the $3.5 trillion that they're talking about here, plus the $600 billion for the infrastructure, the bipartisan deal that I don't hate in theory, we are now well past $4 trillion. In addition to the $2 trillion of the so-called COVID relief, $6 trillion. It is insane. Phil Klein has a piece about it today discussing what Republicans should do. I have to say I agree with him. 
This was a wake-up call this week. I will read to you a little bit of his advice and share what I think about how Republicans ought to respond to this proposed onslaught. It is shockingly reckless. It is like otherworldly. Like they're on another planet where money isn't real and math doesn't matter. But we like to operate on this show on planet Earth. And we will return to planet Earth and the Guy Benson show right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So in the open, I laid out what Democrats are now proposing. A $3.5 trillion totally partisan reconciliation package with every liberal left-wing progressive witch list item jammed in there. Maybe not every single one, but a whole bunch of them. It's just nuts. Philip Klein at National Review says that the rolling out of this package, quote, should obliterate the infrastructure agreement, the bipartisan one that we have, again, been open to. So I thought it actually wasn't too bad. But if you're going to add that $600 billion on top of $3.5 trillion, I don't think Republicans should have their fingerprints. This is me, not Phil. I don't think they should have their fingerprints on any of it. If this is what the Democrats are going to do, they're obviously not operating in good faith. President Unity is once again utterly failing on that front. I mean, what an absolutely, I mean, just setting aside the math and the real estate, what an offensive, ridiculous proposal. Phil calls it a package that is introduced, quote, on a purely partisan basis containing every liberal wish list item but the kitchen sink. He says, if Senator Joe Manchin wants to go along with this insanity, Democrats have the power to ram through much of their agenda on a partisan basis. But Republicans should do absolutely nothing to grease the wheels of this abomination by giving it the imprimatur of bipartisanship. So I've been open to the bipartisan deal on infrastructure. If this is what the Dems are going to pair it with one way or another, $3.5 trillion, Republicans should just say hands off completely. Absolutely not. You try to pass this. We don't want anything to do with this. It's unaffordable. We cannot handle it. It's unsustainable. You own it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com. Back here from New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. On this Thursday, tune in tonight, Fox Business Network, FBN, Kennedy is on vacation. I'm filling in tonight and Monday, FBN, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Joining me now is U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. Senator, it's good to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Guy. Good to be with you. So I just spent the opening half hour here talking about the new proposal that Democrats say that they have come up with, that they're in agreement on within their party, 3.5 
trillion dollars in new spending for the Biden Democratic agenda. That's on top of their so-called COVID relief. That's on top of the federal budget, $4 trillion plus. It's on top of potential infrastructure, $3.5 trillion. And they're saying they do it through reconciliation, party line only. They say it's paid for also, but details to come. Overall, what is your reaction when the Democrats rolled this out this week? Well, my reaction is I'll believe it when I see it. But don't none of us should question the ambitions of, uh, of the Democrats to spend as much money as they possibly can. And uh, obviously, they used COVID-19 as an excuse to pass a $2 trillion bill in the early days of the Biden administration. Only 10% of it actually had to do with COVID-19. And there's the truth is the inflation problems we're beginning to experience now are, I think, a direct result of the fact that uh, the country is awash with cash from the federal government, much of it borrowed. And, uh, frankly, driving up the cost of goods and services for uh, regular working families. So yeah. uh, they're very, uh, they're, they're, they, they are being very aggressive. Whether they can pull it off or not remains to be seen. I mean, it's like, okay, well, look at this inflation. And there are reports that the White House is actually nervous about inflation. And, gosh, is Larry Summers right? Could this be an issue? And then they turn right around and say, hey, let's go for another $4 trillion. Let's see what happens, yeah. which is a pretty shocking number. And I know – Billions and trillions, people's eyes glaze over. But I tried to con- contextualize for the audience what an astounding number, $3.5 trillion in new spending on top of everything else, what that really looks like and what that means. So this now leads to a tactical question for Republicans because, as you know, a number of your colleagues, including colleagues that we like and respect who have been on the show, they negotiated a bipartisan infrastructure deal with Democrats on traditional infrastructure, like real infrastructure, mm-hmm. not these other definitions. And I've been relatively, I think, realistic and pragmatic, I think, I hope, on that issue. I think that it's probably the best that we could hope for. And this is something that I've at least been open to on this show and in my writing at Town Hall. However, when I see this number come down, $3.5 trillion from the Democrats on a reconciliation bill, if you add that together with the infrastructure proposal, it's now north of $4 trillion. I mean, it, it truly is crazy to me, Senator. And so the question mm-hmm. becomes for you guys in, in leadership, and you, of course, work very closely with Senator McConnell, is there a sense among your colleagues that perhaps even those who support the infrastructure plan in isolation are saying these numbers are so astronomically reckless that we don't want to have our fingerprints anywhere near a $4 trillion spending spree? So let's see if the Democrats can actually get their votes together. We're not giving them a single vote on any of this stuff. Uh, what do you make of that? What are you hearing? And, and how do you anticipate this playing out? Well, if there is a bipartisan infrastructure package to be had that it's responsibly paid for, I think that's something we ought to seriously consider. But the pay-fors are always the uh, the last thing anybody wants to talk about, and it remains to be seen whether they are credible and responsible. So far, it's interesting to me, only in Washington would you have a debate about going to a bill that has not actually been written yet, and which has not uh, actually had a score by the Congressional Budget Office. To, they're going to be the ones to tell us whether they think the, the, the pay-fors for the infrastructure bill are credible or whether they're just made out of cotton candy. And by the way, Senator, just to jump in, I've read some rumors at least that 
what the Democrats are already talking about for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation massive pot. Some of the pay-fors, they're just plundering some of the infrastructure pay-fors already. Mm. I mean, mm. so the whole the whole thing seems like a complete shell game. And I agree with you in theory on the infrastructure thing. But if the Democrats are just going to try to do this, $4 trillion plus, I just wonder if it would make sense strategically for the Republicans to cut bait and say, we don't want to give you any sheen of bipartisanship. If this is what you want to try to do to the country, good luck. You, Chuck Schumer, and you, Nancy Pelosi, can try to whip those votes. You're going to get zero from us. Well, they certainly will own it uh, in the run-up to the next election. I'm worried about what happens to the country in the meantime, and I know you are too. And beyond. And beyond. And so the... um, I would separate the reconciliation part, which, of course, is $3.5 trillion. Uh, now, they will try to say they pay for that with raising taxes, which is something is a red line for us. I just think that's going to be an entirely partisan exercise, and I would expect them to do that regardless of what we do on infrastructure. But what, to me, was so deeply disappointing is when the president was negotiating with this group of senators, Republicans and Democrats, he said, okay, we have a deal. And then he then he misspoke, I guess, and actually told the truth, which is he, he didn't he wasn't going to sign that bill until the reconciliation bill uh, was signed, too, because they have a problem, as you know, in a 50 50 Senate. Uh, they need Kirsten Cinema. They need Joe Manchin. If they lose one of those votes, they can't do the big spending bill, the $3.5 trillion. And I think what they're worried about is that if they do the infrastructure bill first, that then they will not be able to muster the majority vote they need in order to do their massive spending bill. Uh, I, hope they're, I, hope, I hope they won't be able to do it, but that remains unseen. Nancy Pelosi really, uh, really I think, uh, really spilled the beans and when she said well we're not I'm not going I'm going to hold on to the infrastructure bill until we get the reconciliation bill the the 3.5 trillion dollar spending bill too so she basically said they are going to live or die uh, together yeah and I mean, so it's, there's a lot of lot of Machiavellian stuff going on here yeah I mean Manchin had said he his number was at most 2 trillion they're like okay we see your 2 trillion we raise it 3.5 trillion uh, you know, and part of me wonders, and we can maybe cross this bridge down the line. We'll see how the votes line up for them or not on the Democratic side. But if they pass anywhere close to $3.5 trillion in new spending with a bunch of tax increases and much of it unpaid for and adding to the debt and just all this craziness, I just don't know if it makes sense for the Republicans to then turn around and reward them with a bipartisan infrastructure vote. Um, you know, it's like, hey, you know, now now we'll pile 600 billion on top of this and we'll have our fingerprints on that and i understand that there's a lot of moving pieces to this so we don't have to start speculating about how this might go down but i found the 3.5 trillion number to be absolutely shocking and it takes a lot for the democrats to shock me these days it was still a shocking figure to me senator i do want to ask you about a speech that you gave earlier this week on the Senate floor, I'm not sure I've seen one of those easels behind a senator before with beer prominently featured, (laughs) Uh, but you gave that speech about your state-level colleagues from the Lone Star State, Democrats who have fled Texas, and of course they're now with you in Washington, D.C., for reasons that are kind of unclear. They say they're trying to 
you know, fight for democracy or whatever while abandoning democracy in Texas. What is your take on the whole state of play there? And, and what do you make of national Democrats, the president, the vice president, treating these delinquent lawmakers like pro-democracy heroes who are, you know, making a great courageous sacrifice on behalf of democracy itself. I mean, it's it's so overwrought and so silly, but I feel like the Democratic Party writ large is just embracing it. Yeah, it's a political stunt in in service to a phony narrative about the nature of these election law changes that are being made in places like Georgia and Texas. Um, you know, the Voting Rights Act is probably one of the single most important pieces of legislation Congress has ever passed, in my opinion, and it's actually worked dramatically well, shrinking the gap between white and uh, voters and voters of color, Hispanics uh, and African Americans. And uh, but the Democrats just can't let the narrative go. Uh, this is part of their their uh, systemic racism mantra and uh, talking about critical race theory and viewing everything through the lens of race. Um, it's just not true. But this is this is in pursuit of political power. It's just uh, it's it's not anything more honorable uh, than that. And they believe that if they can get the federal government to take over our elections, they can eliminate common sense voter ID laws. They can they can uh, make the Federal Election Commission a partisan uh, commission. They can actually force you to finance federal elections for uh, candidates that you disagree with uh, by using taxpayer funding for elections. It's just a radical vision, but they're dressing it all up in the in the in the in the camouflage of of, of race racial discrimination against voters. Well, and it's it's already failed. I mean, Joe Manchin said, I can't do this. There are reportedly right. a few other Democrats who, behind the scenes, were very glad that he sort of took that bullet saying, we also don't want to vote for this thing. So that bill is dead, but your colleagues right. in Texas, I guess, don't know that. So they've, they've come to Washington, of all places, on their charter jets with their non-Texas beer, their Miller Lite, um, and they're, I guess, lobbying for a bill that's dead while trying to prevent... The Texas law from passing, rather than debating it or trying to amendment back uh, to amend it rather back in Austin. Did you right. catch? Did you catch the president's remarks in Philadelphia this week? You know, Jim Crow and the, the most dangerous thing since the Civil War. How does that sit with you? Well, it's just outrageous demagoguery. Um, I mean, you know, you got to be careful when you start equating things with like the Civil War or the Holocaust or Nazi Germany. I mean, these. And these these metaphors, these analogies are overwrought, and they just demonstrate the, the the lack of any substance. So I think the president is trying to um, to appease the radical base that basically doesn't want the states to have a co-equal voice in some of these matters that are committed to them under the Constitution. They believe there is no good idea except the ones they come up with here in Washington, D.C., and they don't want the states, and they certainly don't want us as individual citizens to be able to make our own choices. They want to call the call the shots. I want to ask you, Senator, about immigration, because I know there's a lot of attention being paid to Cuba right now for good reason, and we've talked about it here. I also just noticed a relatively unheralded report from one of our colleagues here at Fox at one sector along the southern border, I think the other day, had 2,200 apprehensions. 2,200, not in, not including, not counting the gotaways, the crisis at the border remains horrible. 
And I yeah. feel like it, Republicans will talk about it sometimes. Much of the press will occasionally pay attention to it, and then they get distracted. The administration says the border's secure. We're working on it. Everything's fine. You know, the vice president went down there for two seconds and uh, took a few photos and left. I I kind of feel I know I'm detached from it. Living in D.C. currently in New York, this is an ongoing acute crisis for a lot of people in your state. And for some reason, that doesn't seem to really be translating in terms of or into rather any sense of urgency on the part of the administration or anyone else. In fact, the administration saying the crisis doesn't exist. They won't even use that word. Well, yesterday, the Center for Disease Control announced that 93,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year, uh, a, a huge uptick in the number of those overdoses. Most of those drugs came across our southern border by the same criminal organizations that are smuggling economic migrants and trafficking in human beings across the southern border. And, and basically what the cartels have figured out is if you can flood the zone with people, including unaccompanied children, but that will take the Border Patrol offline so they can take care of the kids as we would want them to do, but that leaves a huge gaping hole in our border security. And it, I am shocked, just like you are, with the uh, obliviousness and just the sense that it doesn't matter. Uh, unless, of course, you're a Cuban refugee and you want to get away right. from Cuba. Mayorka says don't yeah, come. Have them. But we got 180,000 migrants a month being coming across the uh, southern border, and it's just going to get nothing but worse. Yeah, it's almost as if they feel like certain migrants might turn into Democratic voters, and others, true refugees from a communist regime, uh, might not be future Democratic voters. And I, I cannot prove that that is part of their calculation, but uh, perhaps call me a cynic. I can't help but <laughs> at least wonder. On the point of immigration, last question, Senator Cornyn, and we're coming full circle back to this $3.5 trillion spending uh, bonanza that the Democrats are talking about trying to jam through with only their votes in a totally divided Congress. They're also saying that they're going to try to do immigration reform in this bill. I'm not sure if that would pass muster with reconciliation rules, but I'm just I'm sort of flabbergasted by the arrogance that they would even try. Well, I think the, you know, what what's so amazing, guy, is that uh, if they accomplish a fraction of what their aspirations are here, uh, we're going to have a good midterm election in 2022 because I think there's going to be a monumental backlash. But immigration is is a complex topic. It's one of my biggest frustrations since I've been here in the Senate that we haven't been able to do more in that area because there's so much more that we can and we should do. But if they try to do it on a purely partisan basis, I think they will run into arcane rules like the bird rule, which says you're not supposed to pass substantive legislation on a budget, on a budget uh, reconciliation right. uh, process. But again, that's, that's talking Greek, I think, to most of your listeners. But the point is, they are, they are going to do anything and everything that they can possibly do to advance their agenda. You know, they're sort and, of acting, Senator, like they're expecting to lose in 2022. So let's just jam as much bad stuff in as we can while we barely have the votes. And then if we lose, oh, well, I mean, that's what they did in 09, 2010. Um, and I, hopefully they will be less successful this time around. We'll be watching very closely. Senator John Cornyn, we always appreciate your time. U.S. Senator from the great state of Texas. I'll actually be heading to Austin at the end of the month, so I'm excited for that. Senator, thank great. you. 
Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show, I saw that Circleback, the White House press secretary, announced today a White House initiative to flag problematic social media posts on COVID for the social media companies to take down or censor. Now, I'm not in favor of COVID misinformation. I think it does exist out there. I don't like misinformation in general. I also find it deeply creepy for the White House to partner up with social media, for them to flag information that they deem to be misinformation or dangerous for censorship. That is creepy to me. And part of the creepiness, part of the reason that informs this deep discomfort with what the White House has announced is the fact that true things have been labeled misinformation by social media and by the Democrats within very recent memory, whether it was the Hunter Biden laptop story or the lab leak theory out of Wuhan, that stuff was suppressed wrongly because Democrats and their allies decided that it should be. And now they want to do more of it. And they're saying so explicitly, what could possibly go wrong? The Guy Benson Show resumes in the next hour. Carl Rove will be here. Much more to come. Stay tuned. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's our middle hour of three here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, coming to you from New York City, the Big Apple, Fox News headquarters. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, the website, podcast free every day. Fox News alert. The Dow closed up 55 points, so close to 35,000. 34,988 at the close today. We are joined now by Carl Rove, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to President George W. Bush. He's author of the book, The Triumph of William McKinley. He's a Wall Street Journal columnist and a Fox News contributor, a very busy man. Carl, thank you, as always, for squeezing us in. Happy to be here. Let's start with your home state and Texas. A lot of lawmakers, we were talking about this last hour with John Cornyn, a lot of the lawmakers in Austin have decided not to do their jobs anymore. They're in Washington, D.C. They're giving interviews. They're patting themselves on the back. They're fundraising. They say they're defending democracy, really saving democracy from an assault against it. And they have a lot of top Democrats in the country, including the president, at their back, reinforcing these messages. What's your reaction to this? Uh, to use a favorite word of our president, malarkey, uh, the bill in Texas is principally about two big issues. Uh, last fall, Harris County, Texas, decided that it was going to allow drive-in voting, 
drive-through voting for anyone who wanted to, despite the fact the state has an explicit statute saying that drive-through voting can only be used uh, by by people who are physically unable to uh, get out of their car and go into the polls unassisted. So uh, this law, the, this bill, explicitly makes it clear that you cannot that you cannot do that. You cannot you cannot just sort of have everybody show up, drive through, and so forth. The other part is 24-hour voting. On October 29th, the Harris County decided that we have 13 days of early voting here in Texas. They decided that they were going to keep the polls open for 24 hours. Again, not, a, not, not no explicit authority to do so under state law. State law requires you to have a, a certain number of hours that it was open. They decided to make it 29, uh, 24 hours on the 29th. So this law says uh, you can't do that. In addition, it expands the number of hours during early voting. It adds additional hours during the weekdays and adds additional hours on the weekends and then makes uh, weekend early voting uh, hours uh, you know, more widespread by lowering the threshold from 100,000 voters in your county to 55,000 voters in your county. So it actually expands the opportunities to vote early. Well, and so, Carl, but you have Democrats saying this is a direct assault on democracy. It's stripping people of yeah. the right to vote. It's Jim sure. Crow. That's yeah. what the president says, Jim Crow. Yeah, well, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're right. You're right. He said that. Guess what? Delaware doesn't allow people to vote 24 hours a day, and it doesn't have drive-through voting. It doesn't even have early voting in 2020. The first time that Delaware residents will be able to vote early uh, for 10 days is in 2022. Now, Texas approved early voting in 1987 under a Republican governor, and we have 13 days. Now, if the absence of 24-hour voting and the absence of drive-through voting is racism, then when is the president of the United States going to denounce bitterly his home state as a, you know, re- as the resident of Jim Crow you in know, the 21st century? Carl, I mean, it's a very obvious and good question. We've talked about it here because he did the same song and dance with Georgia, saying that's Georgia, Jim Crow. Exactly right. And actually, yeah. a legislator in Georgia, and we talked about this now months ago, introduced a bill calling it, I believe, the President Joe Biden Jim Crow Voter Suppression Act, uh, which would have adopted Delaware's laws in Georgia. That's what the bill would yeah. have done. And the thing yeah. that is sort of amazing to me, correct me if I'm wrong, I follow the news pretty closely. You do, too. Have you heard President Biden asked this question by anyone? Has he been asked about his home state no, and the system no. under which he's been elected over and over again in Delaware? Since, since 1972, he's been elected in a system that he today, this week in Philadelphia, decried as Jim Crow and voter suppression. I mean, and as a threat to democracy. I mean, look, we should not be deliberately undermining people's confidence in our system. These are lies. These are lies. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And when Jim Clyburn, the number three Democrat in the House, says, oh, no Democrat has ever, ever, <laughs> ever opposed voter ID, yeah. and, and he's been on the record decrying it as a racist, uh, as a racist action, uh, you know, please, we're not stupid. There's a thing called videotape. There's a thing called comparisons. We can compare individual state laws. Think about this. 
We have 13 days of early voting in Texas. We've had that since 1990. Since 1987, we started, we approved it. By 1991, they'd expanded it. So we have had 30 years of early voting, and we're being lectured by a guy who ran for 40-some-odd years in a state that only is going to begin to have early voting next year. Yeah, it'll still be Thank less. You, it'll still be less yeah, than less. what Texas has, less than what Georgia has. He calls those states Jim Crow. And what's amazing is, like, you know, politicians will get away with whatever they can get away with. And he's obviously a demagogue. It feels like he's just completely given up on the unity thing. And so he's saying what he's saying. It's just astounding to me and such a commentary on our media that no one has even asked him the question. I mean, I think his brain might break when he tries to explain why Biden's system and Delaware is fine, but Georgia and Texas are Jim Crow. But that's an, a question that's a no-brainer unless you are actively rooting for the guy and rooting against the other states for partisan reasons. And I mean, that seems like a pretty good theory about what's going on here with the press. Carl, I do want to ask you – we have a little bit of time left, a couple minutes. If you want to comment actually briefly, do you think – because you look at this new $3.5 trillion spending proposal, which is just nuts. The Democrats rolled out this week. They said they're going to do it on their own through reconciliation. Joe Biden campaigned and won on unifying, working together, bipartisanship. Has he just abandoned that or are they just looking towards 2022 and not liking what they're seeing and saying, all right, screw it. Let's just do whatever we can because we're likely going to lose at least one of these majorities. So let's just go as progressive and left wing and divisive as possible, because that's how it looks, at least right now to me. Well, I think I think you're right that they're just saying we're going to lose control of at least one or both bodies in 2022. Let's get the let's let's expand the government while we can. On the first one, I'm not certain that he, you know, he's working with the Republicans on a bipartisan infrastructure a version of the infrastructure bill. So I have to give him credit for that. Yeah. But I'm not certain he's really in charge of his own White House. I think a lot of this is being driven by the staff, and so that staff is saying, okay, uh, the president's instinct is to try and come to an agreement, and, and we got to play nice, and we don't want to look like uh, that we're not willing to sit down and talk to him. But by God, we have got to take our list of left-wing nostrums and and push them through as rapidly as we can. And so, you know, okay, let that thing go over there. But by God, we better get our, we better get our uh, radical agenda approved. Now you're going to try. I mean, they're, they're actively trying now. Carl, we've got about, about one minute left. And I know you, you talk to Republicans all the time. If you were going to sit down and talk to a room full of every Republican running for the House or the Senate in 2022, in 30 to 45 seconds, what would you tell them their themes and messaging ought to be to maximize the chances for a red wave? We got we got to be talking about the bread and butter issues that matter to people. We got to talk, be talking about our values, which are under assault. We need to be attacking the Biden administration, saying we need to have a check and a balance on it, and we need to have a big dose of what it is we're for. It's going to be easy for us to attack. It's going to be okay for us. We're going to find it easy to, to talk about what our values are. We need to work hard at getting the right kind of economic message, but we also need to spell out what it is that it means to be a conservative. In the 21st century we got to be we've got to be for things as well as against things you know what i love that and i think we should flesh that out together in a subsequent conversation because that's a really important piece of the puzzle we'll do that next time carl rove our guest here on the guy benson show carl appreciate it you bet thank you we'll be right back with more of the guy benson show next 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So the Black Lives Matter organization has put out a statement about Cuba. This was last night. And it is absolutely horrible. Now, we have made the distinction on this show between saying and believing and living our lives in support of the proposition that Black Lives Matter Embracing that as not just a slogan, but a truth is separate and distinct and very different than supporting capital BLM, Black Lives Matter, the organization, which is radical. Yes, some of their founders are Marxists. They say so. Yes, they've called for the destruction of the American nuclear family. Yes, they've called for defunding the police. I absolutely reject Black Lives Matter, the organization. I support Black Lives Matter. I support saying Black Lives Matter. I think that there's an important difference there. I think that to respond to Black Lives Matter with all lives matter misses the point. That's something that I've been educated on. And I try to be open-minded and listen to other people. But if you want people to get on board with a political organization— then it is perfectly fine for us to examine what that political organization stands for and believes and for things that they have already done and said for many months at this point. The Black Lives Matter movement, and really years, the Black Lives Matter movement official BLM, the organization, is something that I want nothing to do with. And just to confirm exactly who they are and what they're about, Black Lives Matter decided to weigh in On the unrest in Cuba, where the communist regime is failing badly, there are shortages of all sorts of supplies, there's a huge medical problem, public health problem in that island nation. The incompetence and corruption of this regime, yet again, are harming average Cubans. And you have thugs, official police and other sort of like paramilitary groups going around, detaining people, snatching them out of their homes, beating them. There are reports of deaths. This is what we're watching happen in Cuba. And here's what Black Lives Matter, the official organization, has to say about it. Quote, Black Lives Matter condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans and urges it to immediately lift the economic embargo. This cruel and inhumane policy instituted with the explicit intention of destabilizing the country and undermining humans' right to choose their own government, (laughs) which they don't have in a dictatorship, is at the heart of Cuba's current crisis. No, it's not. Since 1962, the United States has forced pain and suffering on the people of Cuba by cutting off food, medicine, and supplies No, food and medicine are exempted. This is just a shocking amount of ignorance. They're blaming, the first line blames America. They say America is preventing Cubans from choosing their own government, which they can't under their dictatorship. 
They pretend that the embargo from the U.S. is at the heart of what's happening now. No, it's the regime's failures. And they get crucial details about the nature of the embargo completely wrong. The statement goes on, without that money, it's harder for Cuba to acquire medical equipment needed to develop its own COVID-19 vaccines and equipment for food production. Again, blaming America for what the communist regime is doing in Cuba. This comes in spite of the country's strong medical care and history of lending doctors and nurses to disasters around the world. The medical care is not strong. That's the point. At the elite level, it is, and they train doctors who make nothing in Cuba, and they force them to go work elsewhere. So the remittances go into the pocket. The money sent home goes into the pocket of the Castro regime. Apparently, they know none of this or they don't care at capital BLM, Black Lives Matter. The statement goes on multiple paragraphs, every single sentence blaming America, talking about the suffering of black and brown people in Cuba. By the way, the regime in Cuba is extremely racist. They treat darker-skinned Afro-Cubans far worse. There's a whole New York Times piece about that. I guess Black Lives Matter don't really give a damn about that either because the whole purpose of this statement is to attack America and defend the regime. They praise Cuba, quote, for historically demonstrating solidarity with oppressed peoples. The oppressed people are the Cuban people, oppressed by the regime. Then they call on President Biden to end the embargo. There is not a single solitary hint of condemnation for the Cuban government, the Cuban regime, in this entire statement. Not even like a little throwaway, hey, maybe they shouldn't arrest people, detain journalists, beat people in the streets, or kill people, or throw them in prison for peacefully protesting. Right, Black Lives Matter, their whole thing, you would think, would be peaceful protests. Right, A lot of, unfortunately, the stuff that we saw in this country crossed a line into not peaceful, where we had riots and looting and that sort of thing, and a lot of people on the left made excuses for it or ignored it, but they say this is a peaceful protest movement. Well, that's what's happening in Cuba, and the government is assaulting and killing and detaining and torturing those people. And Black Lives Matter, the organization here in America, could not even acknowledge that in this statement. Every sentence of this is attacking the United States and defending the communist regime, which should not be surprising, unfortunately, because this is a communist organization founded by communists, fanatically anti-American. So yet again, I am reminded why Black Lives Matter, capital BLM, the organization, is absolute anathema. I reject it completely. As someone who proudly says Black Lives Matter, and sometimes I've taken some heat from conservatives saying, oh, you're just pandering or you're virtue signaling. No, I've thought about this. But BLM, the organization, they are who we thought they were. What an absolutely morally bankrupt statement, but morally clarifying. This is who they are. They mean every word of it. The ignorance is either a deliberate lie or an afterthought. Their instinct is to smear this country and back up a totalitarian regime 
led by their fellow traveler communists. And that is exactly what they've done for the world to see. So in that sense, it's a service. Jim Garrity from National Review had a pretty good quip. He said, oh, we finally found police that Black Lives Matter, the organization, won't criticize. The jackbooted thugs who are the police in Cuba engage in acts of violence and terror and repression against people. Black Lives Matter stands in solidarity with those police as they beat people in the streets. But they can't find a single kind word to say about American law enforcement. Also extremely revealing, is it not? It's a good point by Jim Garrity. And it's savage because it's true. Black Lives Matter, yes, absolutely. Capital B-L-M, absolutely, positively not. It's The Guy Benson Show. Back after this. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The Guy Benson Show. Halfway through today's program in New York City, I'm Guy Benson. Glad you are with us. I want to address a statement that was made by Dr. Anthony Fauci on MSNBC this week. And there's been a response from a doctor. To be clear, I am not a doctor. But there is a top doctor, in fact, a professor of medicine at Harvard who has responded. Let's first listen to Dr. Fauci, again on MSNBC, talking about very young children being forced to wear masks if they're not vaccinated. Listen to cut three. The children who are not able to get vaccinated because of their age should follow, their parents should follow with them, the guidelines of the CDC that unvaccinated children of a certain age greater than two years old should be wearing masks. No doubt about that. That's the way to protect them from getting infected because if they do, they can then spread the infection to someone else. Quote, no doubt about that, he says. Kids older than two should be wearing masks. Three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds should mask up, says Fauci. So let's just start with a response, not from me, I'll have more to add, but from Dr. Martin Kuldorf. He's a medical school professor at Harvard. On Twitter, he writes this, triple stumble by Fauci. Number one, no scientific evidence that masking children is effective. Number two, even if effective, children have low disease risk, minuscule mortality risk, and do not transmit much. Number three, for the rare transmission, adults should get vaccinated, not demand masks on children. And I have to say, this is a great tweet, not just because I happen to agree with it and he's following the data and the science, and I think that he is really refuting in a powerful way a borderline crazy thing that Fauci has decided to go off and spout on TV. As someone who uses Twitter quite a lot, I'm impressed that he was able to get all of that information into one tweet. 
And he was very succinct and he made his points. Now, I want to focus on number two, his second point, just for a moment. He says, even if the masks were effective, he said there's no real evidence that they are for children. But even if they were effective, children have low disease risk on COVID-19, he's talking about, minuscule mortality risk, and do not transmit much. On that front, let me give you a few pieces of data that illustrates that he is correct. He being Dr. Kaldorf, not Dr. Fauci. We mentioned this on the air, but I'll reiterate it. This is out of the UK. Quote, children are at extremely slim risk of dying from COVID-19, according to some of the most comprehensive studies to date, which indicate the threat might be even lower than previously thought. Some 99.995% of the children in England who were infected during the year with COVID survived, one study found. Initially, so there are hundreds of thousands of kids who tested positive over the course of the pandemic in the UK. 61 of them died. So there were 61 child deaths associated with COVID in the UK. In that entire country, out of hundreds of thousands of kids who tested positive, 61 died. Now, if you're the family of one of those 61, none of this data really matters to you. You know your heartbreak and your heartache. And our hearts go out to everyone who's lost anyone to this horrible disease. I'm not diminishing the seriousness of COVID generally. I think I've been pretty clear on that. Urging people to get vaccinated, adults in particular, I have no apologies for any of that. But this study in the UK found actually of the 61 child deaths in the UK, when they dug a little bit deeper, they found only 25 of them were actually deaths caused by COVID. So 25 in a country of tens of millions of people, where there were almost half a million infections of children during the pandemic, 25 deaths from COVID in the UK. That is statistically... Again, for the rare, rare exceptions, this is no consolation at all. But statistically, child deaths from COVID are non-existent. Now, here is more data. This is from the United States now. This is in New York Magazine, hardly some right-wing rag. Over the course of the pandemic here in the United States, 49,000 Americans under the age of 18 have died of all causes, according to the CDC. Only 331 of those deaths have been from COVID. So 49,000 young Americans, children, have died during the pandemic, which is extremely sad. But of all causes, getting hit by a car, an accident, a suicide, that number is 49,000 total. Within the 49,000 of the children in America who've died over the course of the pandemic, 331 of them died from COVID. That is less than half as many as died of pneumonia. So more than double out of that whole group of juvenile deaths in the United States over that period of time, there was more than double the number of pneumonia deaths as COVID deaths. The infection fatality rate among those aged 5 to 9 in the United States, talking about COVID, less than zero. 0.001%.
One more point on this, and this goes to infection, not just death. You say, okay, well, you've made your point. Kids are unlikely to die. Very, 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 very unlikely to die. Statistically, almost 0% chance. As close, really, to zero as you're going to get. With pneumonia and other causes vastly outpacing COVID among kids. But what if they're getting hospitalized? Those numbers are very low as well. We told you weeks ago now about some studies out in California showing that the initial estimates of hospitalization due to COVID for kids were vastly overblown because they examined the cases and found most of them actually, or at least a very large percentage of them, had nothing to do with COVID. They happened to be in a hospital and you have to get tested. And it turns out, oh, they tested positive for COVID, but they were at the hospital for something totally unrelated. So hospitalization is extremely rare among children from COVID as well. What about infection or spreading the disease? Well, we know that schools that didn't close did not become super spreaders, which is a great sign. It's one of the reasons that schools should have been open for the entire academic year, as they were a lot of places, but closed elsewhere. We've been through all that. This is also from New York Magazine. One recent eye-opening report was highlighted in Nature, Nature Magazine. Among 900,000 in-school pupils learning in North Carolina last fall, researchers researchers would have expected among that group, based on local transmission rates, about 900 cases of COVID among those kids. So 900,000 kids in North Carolina in schools, based on just the normal extrapolation, there should have been 900 cases among those kids in schools. The real number was 23. In another study, writes New York Magazine, among 20,000 Nebraska students attending school all year, there were, in total, two cases, two COVID cases among these kids. So that actually goes to the latter part of the second point that this doctor made, Dr. Kuldorf, rebutting Dr. Fauci. Even if effective, children, talking about masks, even if they're effective on kids, and there's not a lot of evidence that they are, Children have a low disease risk, minuscule mortality risk, we've established that, and do not transmit much. We've also proven that with the data, looking at the case studies in North Carolina and Nebraska. Kids overwhelmingly, I don't know how more clearly I can say this, kids overwhelmingly are safe, thank God, but are safe from this disease. Now, the last point that Fauci makes as he tries to justify this argument that three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, elementary school kids should all be wearing masks if they're not vaccinated and there is no approved vaccine for them. Just instinctively, I think this is crazy. I've read a lot about this disease. We've reported a lot about it here on the show. I saw that clip. I said, what the hell is he talking about? But his justification is, well, the kids could get the disease and transmit it to an adult, someone older, who could then have worse complications. Right? That's what he said. You had to protect them from getting infected because if they do, they can spread the infection to someone else. Now, let's set aside the point from this Harvard Medical School professor that there really isn't good evidence that the masking does help prevent transmission among children. Let's just, for the sake of argument, say you could, at least on some level, 
say that masks would help reduce transmission levels. My point is this, and Dr. Koldorf hints at it a little bit in his third bullet point that we mentioned. At this stage, we are in mid-July, smack dab in the middle of July 2021. The vaccines have been widely available in this country for months. I got my first jab, and I was not in one of the early groups. I was in a low-risk group. I got my first jab in early April. So April to May, May to June, June to July, that's three months since shot number one for me. The shots are widely available for free anywhere. Any adult who wants to be vaccinated in this country has been vaccinated. If you haven't yet, I think you should. I've explained why I did it. I think you should do it too. But people have made their choices. At this point, if an adult is not vaccinated, first of all, the chance that they will contract COVID from a child, those chances are very, very, very slim based on data that we just discussed. But if they did, if that were to occur, they've made their choice not to get vaccinated. There's no shortage. There's no scarcity when it comes to these vaccines. People have made choices in their lives for themselves. And I don't want to sound callous about it, but if you at this point are an adult and you've chosen, you've decided not to get vaccinated, and then you get the disease, that is a choice that you have to live with. Or in some cases, tragically, not live with. But we should not be crafting public policy for anyone else based on the protection of people who are choosing not to get vaccinated. The argument should be, go get vaccinated and then go live your life and leave children alone. That's my view of it. And I think there's a lot of scientific evidence to back that up. It is nuts to me to have someone like Fauci, who I think continues, unfortunately, to squander whatever credibility he had. And again, I have not been someone who's just been dumping on this guy for a year and a half. I haven't. But I think increasingly, it seems like he is addicted to being on television and says a lot of really counterproductive, credibility-harming things. And this is one of them. To say that kids, little kids, need to wear masks. What, in order to protect unvaccinated adults? No. Let the kids live their lives. They are safe. The onus is on adults to make choices for themselves. And then let the chips fall. When we come back, I want to play some sound of a woman in Illinois, a mother, who has a child. You'll hear more about that child. Who isn't allowed to be inside her school without a mask on. She is begging the school board to change their mind. And I watched this clip and I was thinking back to what Fauci said. I'm like, have we lost our minds? And I think for some of us, the answer is yes. And I feel like we need to stop the madness. And as many of us are getting back to normal, common sense, which in this case aligns with the data, needs to prevail. And this crazy over-the-top stuff is actually, I think, preventing certain people from trusting experts, and that's why they don't go out and get vaccinated. The experts and some of these heavy-handed officials and apparatchiks are harming the greater good through their actions, in my view. I'll play you some of that sound from that mother when we come back on this exact same subject. 
It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show, picking up where we left off. There was this mother in Illinois. She went to a school board meeting in her district. Her name is Gracia Livy. Not 100% sure on the pronunciation there. And she tells her story and makes her case. You just listen. Cut four. I'm not sure if you're aware, but my daughter has been doing her school outside alone with her teachers and therapists as my husband and I no longer consent to her wearing a mask. While I appreciate the flexibility that the administration and teachers have shown, I am concerned that her educational needs are not going to be met in this format of um, doing her school outside going forward. It's not my choice for her to be excluded from her peers and to not have access to the wonderful school buildings and tools inside the building, including the bathroom, simply because she's not wearing a mask. Please know that my child's 14th Amendment right of equal treatment under the law is potentially being violated if the district receives money for her to be educated, but the quality of education is less than other children. If the response from parents and others that it is not safe for my unmasked five-year-old to be in the building, I want to remind everyone that there are already unmasked children in the building and that they're welcome, and I'm so glad that they're there where they belong. Please reconsider excluding my child. She has a signed doctor's note exempting her from a mask due to her disability that the district has denied. Let her continue to be a collaborative worker and a community contributor to 203 instead of sitting on a park bench outside of Ann Reed. Please unmask all our kids. Thank you. And she got a round of applause. You know what stuck out to me listening to that? Her daughter is five. This is a kindergartner. She is begging these adults to let her five-year-old child, who, this is point two, has a disability, not wear a mask and go to school. Her doctor has told the school This five-year-old child who is disabled does not need to wear a mask. And that request from the doctor and the family has been denied by this board. Are we losing our minds? And this calls back to all the data that we just talked about in the previous segment. Fauci says young kids have to wear masks. You had that Harvard professor saying not true for these three reasons. Look, I also found it appalling at CPAC when a bunch of people clapped that America is not making more vaccine progress than we are. The vaccines work and they're safe. You see overreach in states like Tennessee, which I think is a response by some Republicans in that state to what they perceive as overreach on the other side, but they went way too far, right? I am not reflexively populist or tapping into some sort of populist anger on the right here. I'm totally pro-vaccine. Let's be sensible, reasonable adults here. And there are some faults on the right. I'm not going to deny that. But to insist that little kids remain masked at this stage in the pandemic, given everything that we know, is discrediting for someone like Fauci. And it's not a surprise that so many Americans have tuned him out, quite frankly. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. You don't want to go anywhere. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Today, tomorrow, and Monday, because I'm filling in for Kennedy. Fox Business, 8 p.m. Eastern, today and Monday night, so I hope you'll tune in for that. And the radio show goes on unimpeded, except I get to see the whole team here in New York, which is pretty exciting. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, is always free. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. So good. So fresh. Check it out, thelongdrink.com, 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. You may have heard a little round of applause in the background there. It's from our in-studio guest this hour, and I have to say, yesterday, I felt extremely privileged to earn, over the course of a segment, a hug from Harris Faulkner, because Harris walked in here, and she's still negotiating the getting back to normal thing, so we did a fist bump and an elbow bump to start, then we had a real heart-to-heart on the air, and at the end of the segment, she hugged me, I was like, wow, it's like I have won a cash prize, but better. By contrast, our next guest comes blowing in before the segment, and instantly drops her bags and gives me a huge hug. She's got a huge smile on her face. It is Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is Make Your Own Sunshine. Janice, it is so great to see you I know. in person after so long. I feel the same way. It's I just I have to give people hugs, whether they like it or not. I liked it, for the record. Right. Well, you know what? On Fox and Friends this morning— uh, Lawrence was filling in for Brian Kilmeade. I have to tell you, I have to be give full disclosure that I okay. was just at lunch with Shannon Bream, and oh. I might have had one glass of wine. No, so I'm not totally on my game. Uh, so one, I had one, so that might affect uh, my Excuse you know me. synapses Are a you little bit. Me that one glass of wine. Throws you off your game. It does. I've been up since three a.m. Oh, that'll do it. Okay, that'll do it. So there's the disclaimer. Just in case, you know, I forget things and I'm 51, so I'm going to do that anyway. I'm also just now understanding why you're in such a great mood. You just like two of the nicest human beings who work at Fox News, yourself, Janice Dean and Shannon Bream together uh, at Del Frisco's. I love her. Yes, I I brought home some uh, lemon dream. cake. Have oh, you tried their lemon cake? It's what they're known it's like for. Seven layers of goodness. I know. Shannon and I split one and then I'm bringing one home for the family. I can't do that. I cannot do that. Like, it's it's good. Yeah. But I would like to take those calories and well, you're put smart. them elsewhere. Right. Well, right? I like, I think I'm just of the of the mind that I have to live in the moment, in the now. I think that's fine. In fact, I had a meal last night that I'm going to talk about later this hour. It was really really good. It was so rich. I went to the gym earlier today. No joke. I'm going to go again later. I. I need to after you that meal so yesterday. so disciplined. Not really. But like my body was like, dude, after that meal, 
you're doing a two a day. And yeah. I was, okay, all right, fair I enough. I would love to have that little voice in my head to do that too. Um, and then you just, you're like, eh, glass of wine. Right. So how did we get on this tangent? So Lawrence Jones was filling in for Brian Kilmeade and we were doing a segment uh, with Wounded Warriors. Um, you know, they were doing a, a bike race that they do every year. They didn't do it last year with COVID. And it was the first time we were all together on Fox Square and we were all, you know, kind of hugging each other. And at the very end, I'm like, Lawrence, give me a kiss on the cheek. And then I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But you know what? Again, live in the moment. I'm going to give you a hug. If afterwards you are not good with that hug, I'm sorry. Oh, you should not be sorry. Apology not accepted. <laughs> and I might get another one after this segment. How about that? <laughs> I love it. Janice, I want to ask you a question about a project here at Fox. And I'm not sure the extent to which... You're authorized to talk about it yet. I know that we're launching this big competitor, basically, to the Weather Channel, Fox Mm -hmm. Weather. And the reason I bring it up is my husband's cousin Mm -hmm. works there. She's going to be one of the on-air talent meteorologists. Her name's Bridget. Yes, yes. I'm so – I know. I don't know how much I can talk about it either. But I'm really excited that she's coming on board. Because I have never met her before. But I've heard about her. And I was in the elevator here. And this lovely young woman says, sorry, are you Guy? And I said, yeah. She said, I'm Adam's co-. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so she could not have been any nicer. I said, I have Janice Dean on the show today. She's amazing. She's like, I can't wait to meet her. So I don't know what you're allowed to say or not, but there are things in the works. And I've seen a few tweets about it, so it's not like state secret. Right. But stay tuned, basically, weather watchers. It's going to be so exciting. And I've had, you know, a sneak peek of what's going on. I can't give out any relevant information. We've hired awesome people who are very excited about this new endeavor that is going to, listen, look at Fox News, look at Fox Radio, look at what we've built here and the people that work here. I've been here 18 years. Wow. There's a reason for that. You know, obviously I love my job, but it's the people that I work with that keep me coming. I feel like it's a second family. And so whatever they come up with, I know is going to be very successful. And I'm really excited about this next endeavor. So are you saying that your forecast is bullish? (laughs) The forecast is mostly sunny. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, I do kind of feel obligated to ask you about this next topic, but it will almost just bring down the mood because we're having such a good chat here. It's all right. I said mostly sunny, which means sometimes it gets cloudy. It does. So let's talk about Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, Mm -hmm. your bet noir uh, for the last year plus for all the reasons that our audience knows. And if you don't know Janice's story and her family, it's a quick Google search away. (laughs) We've talked about it so many times here on the show. You're just not letting it go as you shouldn't. There was a somewhat little-known or little-noticed AP report this week that showed not only was New York distorting the nursing home deaths on purpose, we know that whole scandal, they've actually been undercounting or counting differently their overall COVID deaths. So their numbers at the state level are significantly lower than the federal numbers, which are more accurate because they are, once again, using little tricks of calculation and sleight of hand to try to make New York look less bad. And it's like, I can't possibly be surprised. My tweet actually, when I saw the story was, that doesn't sound like him at all. (laughs) Because of course it does. Of course they're doing this. And it is yet another domino that has fallen in this scandal. And the question is, will that 
chain effect actually bring him down? Mm-hmm. I hope it does. I mean, you know what I am invested here in, and that is voices that are no longer with us. Uh, And that is what, you know, my journey has been over the last year and a half. I'm not a political person. I love doing the weather. I, I, you know, I get knots in my stomach when I talk about politics and, and what is happening here in New York with this governor. But it's important. It's important to continue to try to wear, raise awareness. I mean, that's a big story. And I pointed out that if this was Ron DeSantis and it came out that he was hiding over 11,000 deaths. Which they've accused him of doing based on nothing, right? Right. They accused DeSantis of all this stuff, and it's a lie. It's a conspiracy theory. What they what they allege of DeSantis is actually true and worse with, with him. Cuomo. Absolutely. But will they do a 60 Minutes piece on Andrew Cuomo? They Crickets. Still, still haven't. They have not. So it's hard because... I, he's still getting away with it. Today, he is still getting away with so many things, including the nursing home issue, uh, his reckless order for 46 days, including the fact that he hid those numbers to sell his $5.1 million book. The fact that's that a he, big That's a big part of this, yes, I think. Yes, absolutely. He, he used, benefited financially yes, he did. from the cover-up. And used, I believe, state resources to write that book, which is illegal. Which, and you're not the only one who believes that. In fact, it has been alleged and it's been reported in mainstream media that there are people saying that's exactly what he did. Do you get any gratification at all from, for example, a few weeks ago, we reported here a poll that showed a pretty substantial majority of New Yorkers say either he should resign immediately or not run for re-election. I think the people who were rooting for him to run for a fourth term were in the 20s or 30s, somewhere in that range of percentile. Does that at least feel in your mind, like partial vindication that even in a deep blue state, it's been bad enough and you guys have been beating the drums enough that a large majority say, we're kind of done with you. We'll, we'll see what actually happens with, yeah. if push comes to shove in an election, but at least for now, right, it seems like public opinion has shifted. It's a glimmer of hope. That's never happened before that over 60 percent basically say they don't want him to run for a fourth term or there's another person instead of him. So I feel that, yes. And, you know, I have to tell you, I have talked to so many New Yorkers, ones that loved him in the very beginning. And admittedly, when he first started doing those PowerPoint presentations, I thought he was doing a good job. Um, They have come to me and they've said, we see who he is now. Mm -hmm. We do. And I have to take that as something, you know, that that, you know, going to the beach a couple of weekends ago and and somebody who was like totally in his corner saying to me, I see what you see now. You know, I have to believe. Listen, Tish James is supposed to come out with a new report this month. It's the attorney general. Yes. Here in New York. And she came out with a report in January that basically opened the floodgates a little bit. That was Pretty devastating report, yeah. So I think they are all waiting with bated breath, the Democrats, as to what she's going to say in this report. And if it's damaging enough, that might be the final thing that takes him out. It could be. And I think about this sometimes just from a political standpoint, because I'm much more political than you are. I see that the progressive left is sort of allied with the conservative center right against Mm -hmm. Cuomo for various reasons. And- I actually worry a little bit, politically speaking, that the motivation on the hard left 
is to get Cuomo out and put someone even more left wing in there. Yes. Like out of the Bill de Blasio model, which I think would be even worse for the state of New York, although I think Cuomo is very far left on a lot of issues. And I'm sure they also on their side, you work with some of these progressive lawmakers, you kind of bedfellows arise sometimes. And I think there are good intentions among some of them as well. They just are horrified by what they see. And sometimes when I spend some time worrying in my own mind about this stuff, the conclusion that I end up with at the end of the worry session is, you know what? Some of it might be in bad faith. Some of it might be power politics. Some of it might be attempt to drag the state even further left to, you know, get rid of him as a roadblock or whatever. Personal vendettas going back and forth. My conclusion is this. I don't care. I don't either. I don't care. He is bad enough on the merits that anyone who wants to come and help in the anti-Cuomo movement, it's like, come on in. Whatever you're doing, for whatever reason, good enough by me. At the very beginning when all of this was happening, I thought, wow, Andrew Cuomo is going to be the person that brings the Republicans and the Democrats together. And I believe that's going to happen. Last question. You have a new op-ed about this at foxnews.com. What happened to you? You were just blocked by someone on social media. Why? An assemblywoman yesterday uh, was at a press conference with Governor Cuomo. She, um, a few months ago, actually said that he should resign in shame uh, and was on the stage with him um, side by side talking about, you know, criminal reform, gun control, that kind of thing. And a New York Post reporter said to her, you know, why are you here today if you think that this governor should resign? And she got so angry, furious with her, like that's an inappropriate subject. No, uh, no, it's, not, no at it's all. not. And so I went on Twitter and I actually said that and I addressed her in a couple of tweets, two tweets that said this is an, a, a totally appropriate uh, question and you should be prepared to answer something like this. And she blocked me. She blocked me. She's an elected New York representative. And she is not allowed to block me. And then when people went and said, why did you block Janice Dean? She would block them. Members of people whose families died in nursing homes. She's blocking them. This is what's happening. Like they can't take it. And my response was. It's such an obvious question. And by the way, we've seen it too with Republicans. Like there were Republicans who said back in 2016, some of them, that Donald Trump should drop out of the race when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And then he didn't. And then it's like, okay, now what do we do? They're like, well, I guess we still endorse him anyway. And we've seen it with the governor in Virginia, Ralph Northam, the blackface scandal. All these Democrats are like, he must resign, including Joe Biden. Then Biden's doing an event in Virginia with Ralph Northam. I guess at some point they do something for show. Yeah. And then they look around and say, well, the power dynamics haven't changed. I guess we're just going to keep on marching and you better not ask me about it. Well, that's the point. Do whatever you want to do. But you know what? Handle you're, the question. Exactly. You're, you're, you're Handle a the question. Woman. And then afterwards, he gave her a kiss and was like, I love you. I thought to myself, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Is that woman number 11 now? Or what, does that count? I'm not really sure. <laughs> so that's my latest op-ed. You know, Guy, every week I'm coming out with a new op-ed. And I have to thank Fox News for letting me do that because they're letting me have a voice when many people are trying to silence that. Yeah. And you're speaking on behalf of a lot of people including a lot of people who aren't with us anymore, unfortunately, because of lies, bad decisions, cover-ups, and you just keep doing what you're doing. And yet you're still one of the happiest people that I know. <laughs> Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News. That 
Weather Project is coming. Stay tuned for that. Her latest book, Make Your Own Sunshine. She made hers today with Shannon Bream and Del Frisco's and a glass of wine. Great to see you. I love you, Guy. I'm going to give you another hug. Yay. Okay, we'll take a break. I'm going to go get that hug on the happy hour. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. We'll be right back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show, the happy hour, Janice Dean's joy is just contagious. What a lovely person. Something else that I think brings contagious joy is a show that I finally started watching last week. I've been saying it for a couple weeks. Adam was sort of lukewarm on it. Now we're totally into it. Ted Lasso from Apple TV. And it's just been nominated, actually, for 20 Emmys. Making history the most nominated freshman comedy series ever. And it's definitely a comedy. It is funny. I chuckle multiple times per episode. I'm not like dying laughing. The key with Ted Lasso is, and the basic synopsis is Jason Sudeikis plays an American football coach plucked weirdly out of like Kansas to go be the head coach or manager, whatever they call them of an English Premier League soccer team. And he's like never seen a soccer game. So it's a very strange thing. Why is he getting this job? The fans hate him at first. You start to understand why he was hired. There's some drama behind the scenes. What's so delightful about this show, and I know I'm preaching to the choir if you've already seen it, because people were going on and on about it on social media for months. I finally got around to it. And I'm just going to join the chorus. It is lovely. It is uplifting. You keep waiting for like the cynicism of the day to creep into the show and make it much more edgy and have a bunch of anti-heroes and awful characters. There are so many wonderful characters in this show and it warms your heart. It's funny, but it is just nice. It is relentlessly nice and charming and like chicken soup. In a really rough era, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Ted Lasso, it's just a joy. And just that American optimism that he embodies, oh, I love it. We're almost done binge-watching the first season, then the second season's coming out like in a matter of days. So I think we've timed this actually quite well. Ted Lasso, Apple TV, I endorse it. The happy hour continues after this. GuyBensonShow.com Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, filling in for Kennedy tonight on Fox Business Network, 8 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. Earlier here on the radio in our first hour, we caught up with U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. We caught up on matters related to Washington, D.C. and back in Texas. Here's part of that conversation. So I just spent the opening half hour here talking about the new proposal that Democrats say that they have come up with, that they're in agreement on within their party. $3.5 trillion in new spending for the Biden Democratic agenda. That's on top of their so-called COVID relief. That's on top of the federal budget, $4 trillion plus. It's on top of potential infrastructure, $3.5 trillion. And they're saying they do it through reconciliation, party line only. 
They say it's paid for also, but details to come. Overall, what is your reaction when the Democrats rolled this out this week? Well, my reaction is I'll believe it when I see it. But don't none of us should question the ambitions of, uh, of the Democrats to spend as much money as they possibly can. And uh, obviously, they used COVID-19 as an excuse to pass a $2 trillion bill in the early days of the Biden administration. Only 10% of it actually had to do with COVID-19. And there's the truth is the inflation problems were beginning to experience now are, I think, a direct result of the fact that uh, the country is awash with cash from the federal government, much of it borrowed, and uh, frankly, driving up the cost of goods and services for uh, regular working families. So yeah. uh, they're very, uh, they're, they're, they are being very aggressive. Whether they can pull it off or not remains to be seen. I mean, it's like, okay, well, look at this inflation, and there are reports that the White House is actually nervous about inflation, and gosh, is Larry Summers right? Could this be an issue? And then they turn right around and say, hey, let's go for another $4 trillion. Let's see what happens, yeah. which is a pretty shocking number. And I know billions and trillions, people's eyes glaze over. But I tried to con- contextualize for the audience what an astounding number, $3.5 trillion in new spending on top of everything else, what that really looks like and what that means. So this now leads to a tactical question for Republicans because – As you know, a number of your colleagues, including colleagues that we like and respect who've been on the show, they negotiated a bipartisan infrastructure deal with Democrats on traditional infrastructure, like real infrastructure, Mm -hmm. not these other definitions. And I've been relatively, I think, realistic and pragmatic, I think, I hope, on that issue. I think that it's probably the best that we could hope for. And this is something that I've at least been open to on this show and in my writing at Town Hall. However... When I see this number come down, $3.5 trillion from the Democrats on a reconciliation bill, if you add that together with the infrastructure proposal, it's now north of $4 trillion. I mean, it, it truly is crazy to me, Senator. And so the question mm-hmm. becomes for you guys in, in leadership, and you, of course, work very closely with Senator McConnell, is there a sense among your colleagues that perhaps even those who support the infrastructure plan in isolation are saying these numbers are so astronomically reckless that we don't want to have our fingerprints anywhere near a $4 trillion spending spree? So let's see if the Democrats can actually get their votes together. We're not giving them a single vote on any of this stuff. Uh, what do you make of that? What are you hearing and, and how do you anticipate this playing out? Well, if there is a bipartisan infrastructure package to be had that it's responsibly paid for, I think that's something we ought to seriously consider. But the pay-fors are always the uh, the last thing anybody wants to talk about, and it remains to be seen whether they are credible and responsible. So far, it's interesting to me, only in Washington would you have a debate about going to a bill that has not actually been written yet, and which is not uh, actually had a score by the Congressional Budget Office, to, they're going to be the ones to tell us whether they think the, the, the pay-fors for the infrastructure bill are credible or whether they're just made out of cotton candy. And by the way, uh, Senator, just to jump in, I've read some rumors at least that what the Democrats are already talking about for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation massive pot, some of the pay-fors, they're just plundering some of the infrastructure pay-fors. <laughs> 
already. Mm. I mean, mm. so the whole the whole thing seems like a complete shell game. And I agree with you in theory on the infrastructure thing. But if the Democrats are just going to try to do this four trillion dollars plus, I just wonder if it would make sense strategically for the Republicans to cut bait and say, we don't want to give you any sheen of bipartisanship. If this is what you want to try to do to the country, good luck. You, Chuck Schumer and you, Nancy Pelosi, can try to whip those votes. You're going to get zero from us. Well, they certainly will own it uh, in the run-up to the next election. I'm worried about what happens to the country in the meantime, yeah. and I know you are too. And beyond. But, and beyond. And so the um, I, I would separate the reconciliation part, which, of course, is a, a $3.5 trillion. Uh, Now, they will try to say they pay for that with raising taxes, which is something is a red line for us. I just think that's going to be an entirely partisan exercise, and I would expect them to do that regardless of what we do on infrastructure. My full interview with John Cornyn, Republican senator from Texas, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. That's where the free podcast is as well. Every day, no charge the entire show. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a factor follow-up on a bacon dish that I did in fact try yesterday, and a logistical snafu that almost had me looking ridiculous on national television. That's coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, wrapping up radio for the day, getting ready for TV. Just over two hours from now, Fox Business Network, I'll be filling in for Kennedy. So yesterday here in the home stretch, we talked about food. And I want to do a follow-up on both food items. Number one, as soon as I got off the air here, I got a few notes from people. Our topic about the mac and cheese flavored ice cream, the Kraft mac and cheese ice cream, apparently the producers at the five got a peek at our rundown and they stole this topic from us. I don't even know if that's true. Probably not. But I like to think that they stole it from us. But because it's TV, they had the benefit, plus their whole huge staff, of the visuals. They were able to obtain this product, this so-called ice cream. And they had everyone around the table try it live on air. And they were split two to two, whether they liked it or not. They went finally to Judge Janine, who was on the panel last night, and she handed down her ruling. She said that she liked it. So you had a majority of the five liking this Kraft macaroni and cheese ice cream. Now, a source close to Judge Janine, and I'll just remind you, I was on the panel for Gutfeld last night with Judge Janine. I can't name my source, but a source close to Judge Janine may have admitted in the green room that, in fact, she did not like this ice cream. Allegedly. I don't know. Gutfeld was a definite hard no. He yelled after the show, actually, how disgusting it was in his mind. But others liked it to each their own. So that's item number one. And I will circle back to the Gutfeld experience in just a moment. Item number two, I posted on my Instagram story, at Guy P. Benson. Feel free to follow me, Guy P. Benson on Twitter and Instagram. But I put this on Instagram, a photograph that I took last night at dinner at this steakhouse called Quality Meats, Midtown Manhattan, 
some friends of friends invited me just to talk about a project they're working on. And as I said yesterday, I looked at the menu late at night, the night before, and was so excited for this meal. My mouth was watering. It did not disappoint. It was a really good meal. It was not a healthy meal. Like I got a salad. It was a tomato salad. There were tomatoes in the salad. Also, lots of bacon and cheese and fried onion rings. Those were other things on the plate. That was my salad. But what I was most intrigued by, and we talked about this yesterday, was an appetizer, thick-cut slab bacon, peanut butter, and jalapeno. I said, that is such a strange combination. I'm not sure I'm into it, but I've never heard it before, so I'm intrigued. So I asked the waiter, I said, look, be honest. I'm intrigued by this, but I'm skeptical. And before I could even finish my question, he goes, it is a must order. And I said, really? He said, I'm just telling you. I said, okay, we'll have one for the table. So we got this appetizer. It shows up. It's not exactly what I was expecting. If you want to see what it looked like, I have that photo on my Instagram, Guy P. Benson on the story. You can just touch my photo on top, like the little red circle, and it'll pop up. You can vote whether you think it looks appealing or not. But there's like a homemade peanut butter as a base. And you can tell this was not Jif or Skippy. This was homemade. Little crunch in there. That was the base. Then you had these large pieces of bacon, probably five or six of them, pretty thick, not full-blown pork belly, but thick bacon. I'm sure it was cooked in some sort of absolutely delicious, unhealthy way. And then across the top of it was this relish of diced apples and jalapenos. So I was not expecting it to look the way that it looked. But there it was. So they had me go first. Right, so I take one of the pieces of bacon. I make sure that I have a healthy dollop. By healthy, I mean large. <laughs> uh, healthy dollop of peanut butter. And I got the relish on there. Saw the thing in half. Making sure that I've got a little bit of each component on this bite. Take the bite. And I just chewed and chewed and considered and swallowed and waited. And my brain was thinking so many thoughts. There was almost like a, a series, like a wave of tastes. And I was trying to figure out, do I like this or not? The last sensation, the heat came at the end, right? So it was like kind of sweet and smoky and savory and then a punch of heat at the very end. And I put down my fork and I said, I love it. It was Really good. It worked. He was right. I told him, I hope you are not leading us astray with this very strong, unequivocal. He said, no one has ever expressed disappointment. And he walked away. We were like, really? No one ever? So we were ready to be the first. Nope. Now, we did not eat all of it. We left a slab of bacon on the plate just because it was so rich but we each had at least one piece of bacon and plus a little bit more. Really good, amazing combination of flavors. I would have never thought of anything like that. I don't even really like peanut butter very much. Yes. I was talking about how much I like Ted Lasso earlier in the hour. I gave it my endorsement. I now endorse this bacon 
peanut butter jalapeno concoction. But it's not for the faint of heart. Probably not great for a weak heart. And it's a lot. I would not recommend one person trying to eat this because three of us didn't quite complete it. But it was absolutely delicious and unique, which is what I liked. Okay, so that was after we taped Gutfeld. It's no secret that Gutfeld tapes at a certain time in the evening. And so I had arranged it that we made the dinner reservation for after the taping. So it was sort of a later dinner. Of course, the show airs at 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. So rewind the tape a few hours earlier. I had finished up with radio, and I had a quick turnaround. And so I was back at the hotel, and you were if you were watching on the live stream yesterday for the radio show, I had sort of a little bit of a beard going, like a pretty significant, not thick, but you could notice it. Beard going, and I decided we're getting rid of the beard for TV. It's time to go. And I had all the little shaving implements that I needed. And my main razor, these are they were both electric razors. I have the shower going. I'm on a pretty tight timeline. And I'm shaving. I'm in the mid-shaving process, and this electric razor goes out of batteries. My face looks ridiculous. My face has a patch of hair on one sort of cheek. And then if you can imagine a goatee, but really just the bottom part of it, that's what I look like. And I stared at myself in the mirror for a panicked moment. I was like, is there any way hair and makeup could help this? No, there was no way. So I... Thank God I did have the charger with me, but it doesn't necessarily charge that fast. So I decided I'm going to put it in the charger and plug it in instantly and just pray that I can shower and do everything else that I need to to get some charge back on this thing. I thought it was charged. Clearly it was not. And also you can't use it while plugged in. That's the other detail. I don't know why. It's something the way it's designed. You cannot shave with the plug-in. It only shaves on battery. I don't understand this. And it's never been an issue until, and I'm going to be on in front of millions of people, with no margin for error in terms of getting over there on time. So I'm done with my shower. I'm doing everything. I'm getting as dressed as I can, knowing that I still need to shave, unplug the thing, just like set a quick prayer, hit the button, And it turned on. All right, so the the blades are going. I'm like, okay, I have no idea how much time I have. So I frantically shaved my face. I must have looked absurd. Not as absurd as I would have looked if I didn't shave my face, but I would have had to, I don't know, go buy a razor and some, but there was almost no time. Like I had to go get in makeup and then they have a live studio audience in the room. Like the show will go on. But I was able to get the last few shreds of facial hair mostly removed, plug it back in, and then race off. I made it. It looked fine. But there was probably like 15 minutes in there where it was touch and go, and I was genuinely concerned that my ridiculous patches of hair on my face were going to be something that I was going to have to be in public with. And then sheepishly go to a producer or someone and say, I had an emergency. I don't know what to do. Please help me. 
And I was not eager to do any of that. And knowing if Gutfeld had gotten any wind of this, I'd been like, you are going on with this. Do not shave. We're going to make fun of you for a full hour. And I did not want any part of that knowing Greg, that mischievous little man. But crisis averted. I was able to get just enough of a charge on it. And then you better believe I charged it overnight. So when I shave later, getting ready for Kennedy, coming up here in a little bit, I will have a nice, long, thorough, luxurious shave with a fully charged razor. Although, again, when you're going from a beard to nothing, that takes extra effort. Like, it wasn't just a little bit of shadow a few places. It was just splotchy grossness. But the home viewer would have no idea about this private struggle. I'm not saying that I'm a hero or MacGyver, but we got the job done. (laughs) Thank goodness. Oh, man. It was stressful. It was very stressful. We're out of time. TV tonight with Kennedy. Hope you'll join us 8 p.m. Eastern Time Fox Business. Right back here from New York tomorrow on the radio. Same time, same place. Guy Benson Show. Charge your electronics, folks. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.